1: Right. Thank you. Welcome back to another episode of NFT 365. And we're rolling through the month of March and uh, we could call it a bear market. We could call it a down market. We're just calling it. We're just kind of rolling through the market. And, you know, as we kind of Kind of run through the the podcast as we run through a lot of the the episodes. You know, one of the big themes that we've been seeing is kind of you know our ability to definitely roll with the punches and our ability to kind of understand the different nuances that exist in uh, this entire Web three space. And so, I know for so many of you that listen uh, each and every single day, um, it can be a roller coaster. And just know that you're not alone. And the good news is we're going on the roller coaster, both the ups uh, and the downs uh, together. So uh, you know, hopefully we can all kind of stick together on that side. But we're going to jump into today's episode, and I'm very excited. We have a special guest for us today. We have uh, Ms. Swan Sit and Swan, who I got to know via Clubhouse, has uh, an amazing re- uh, resume of a Swan-led teams focused on digital transformation and was the head of digital marketing at Nike, Revlon, F- Estee Lauder, I mean, just a few uh, large brands that many of us know. Uh, and I just love that, you know, Swan has done an amazing job of, not only providing thought leadership and insight across uh, the Web3 space, but also kind of uh, shining light and bringing others into the social audio space, which is also a space that I love from a, a serendipities perspective, the authenticity that exists here as well. And so, Swan, thanks so much for joining us. Welcome to NFT 365.
0: Thanks for having me, Fanzo. I've been really looking forward to this.
1: Well, I say welcome to NFT 365, but I know some people that are probably like, wait a second that voice sounds familiar. And that is because you did do a little segment for us on International Women's Day with uh, Shira Lazar. And so first off, I want to say thank you for, for that segment. And thank you for joining us again. And, you know, I, I read a little bit about your background, but, you know, introduce yourself. How do you, how do you kind of explain like what you do or, or what you love to do? Give us a little bit of, of your background and introduce yourself to the audience. Yeah, Thanks. Um,
0: I was in the corporate world for most of my career. As you said, I was doing digital transformation, uh, head of digital marketing at companies like Nike, Estee Lauder, Revlon. I left the corporate world a few years ago, and now I sit on the boards of publicly traded companies. I advise a VC and a SPAC. I own an energy drink with some teenage TikTokers that have 60 million followers between them, Josh Richards and Bryce Hall. And when the pandemic started, I jumped on Clubhouse because I was kind of locked inside and bored. I was lucky to be early, but I also logged a lot of hours. Because remember back then, like May of 2020, we were still Lysol groceries. We didn't know what this thing was. So logging those hours on Clubhouse, I started being a part of a great community. And I really enjoy mentorship and Part of the digital transformation I'd done for the past 10 years turns out to be really useful to big companies undergoing transformation or even startups in growth phase alike. So ended up building quite an audience on here. So between the last year I went from starting on Clubhouse to I think in a year hitting 3.5 million followers, now I get to create content for a living, which is really cool. Um, and then as you know, because you were on Clubhouse too, there was a popularization moment for NFTs on Clubhouse last winter. And the great thing about an independent creator is you get to kind of talk about whatever you want. And I try to chase things I'm curious about. And NFTs, once you have a dev, once you have an artist, it's a lot about marketing. And that was my background. So I became fascinated with the space. I went from hosting rooms on projects to advising because so much of this is about marketing and strategy, which is what I do. And now it's this weird mix of stuff, the public board life, the energy drink entrepreneur, the creator and the NFT advisor that brings me here today.
1: Well, I mean, I, I just love all aspects of that. And, you know, you were on definitely early. I, I joined the very first time I joined Clubhouse was in August. It was still it was still in test flight at that time. Um, but I ended up not, uh, I didn't have a really good first experience. So I ended up actually uh, deleting that account. And thankfully, uh, my good friend Lindsay brought me back on in November and, and got to kind of ride this ride ever since. And I, I love that part of the story. I'm curious, mostly when people say like, hey, I spent most of my career in corporate, they don't present kind of like their post-corporate life being very multi-passionate or multi-hyphenated. But based on all of the things you're doing, you're very multi-passionate. Did you always identify like multi-passionate and kind of being able to tap into different things in the corporate life? Or did the freedom of kind of getting out of corporate allow you to kind of open up some of those doors? How did that kind of uh, come to life for you?
0: I think I've always had diverse interests, right? I'll walk red carpets, but I'll summit mountains. I like fashion. I like space and astrophysics. I'm a bit of a contradiction, and I think that makes us richer people. But the problem is, over history, with higher education and greater depth of knowledge, we had to pick something we were identified with as a profession. You're a doctor, you're a lawyer, you're a businessman, whatever that may be. And so while I think most of us innately are curious, because we had to pick higher education and specialization, we were siloed into one function – And so for me, I think when I left corporate, I was like, well, I'll just sit on boards and advise. And I didn't think, wow, now that I've left corporate, I have freedom. I was like, let me continue doing what I'm doing, but from a more leisurely pace. And what was interesting about what Clubhouse thrust me into and my friends bringing me into Annie Energy, I realized that those passions were still there. And at a time where I was trying to take a break, I actually now work more than ever because I get to chase all my passions. And work doesn't feel like work. I know it's so cliché. But they say that when it's yours and when you're doing something you love, it doesn't feel like work. I don't blink an eye working 18-7 anymore, and I know that's not healthy. But without the confines of corporate, I was able to chase whatever I was interested in. Now, that being said, I will never trade my education or my corporate career because those were the things that gave me the confidence and experience and structure to do what I do today. And also, I mean, I came from pretty humble backgrounds. My parents came to the U.S. when I was six years old. They didn't even finish middle school, so we didn't have education. We didn't have language, barely had savings when we came to this country. They worked two jobs. Education was always so important to me. Those were the things I needed to open the doors to get me to where I am, so I wouldn't trade any of that, but I definitely do feel like I'm living a second life, and it turns out those passions were always innately there. I just didn't have the freedom to do it, but I needed those guardrails and the training to be able to get the confidence and the reps to be good at it.
1: I love that context and I'm so glad you positioned it that way you because know, I think that we we often hear like it's one or the other like for you to love the you know the freedom of entrepreneurship you must have had to hate the the confines of corporate and you know I worked in the US government for 9 years as a as a contractor and then 3 years uh, at a startup before you know I've spent the last uh, you know 7 plus years now owning my own business and for me, I loved every job I've ever had. I I found a way to, you know, make it, you know, something that I was passionate about. I'm also very blessed that, you know, I had uh, multiple bosses that I really liked. I, I was, someone asked me a question on a podcast yesterday, you know, what was the one boss, you know, if there was a boss you could go back and never work for, who would it be? And like, I kind of think about it and I said, like, I ended up being myself. Right? Like, I I think I ended up being the, <laughs> the toughest on my, on myself. Uh, you And you mentioned, I, I think, you know, you also brought in like a lot of context into you know like the you know the education side but also kind of like the different paths along the way and so i'm curious you know i actually believe the web3 opportunities really allow the multi-passionate, multi-hyphenated to really kind of branch out and even like kind of discover new, you know, creative opportunities. While at the same time, if you don't have the experience, you know, prior to, I think that's what's leading to a lot of the projects that are questionable, which we'll get into in a second. But uh, you mentioned that you you like to find things that you're curious about. And you mentioned the NFTs here on Clubhouse. And I think it's so funny, for almost everyone I've interviewed uh, on the podcast, uh, even some that I didn't know on Clubhouse at the time, uh, when I asked them like how they discovered Clubhouse or discovered NFTs, it's either Clubhouse or Gary Vaynerchuk. Like literally, those are the two like the threads. So I'm curious, when you first heard of or discovered NFTs, were you curious from the jump, or what what about them kind of you know sparked your curiosity the most? When I was at Nike, I was
0: challenged with a lot of different things. I was head of digital marketing, and I was also running e-commerce operations at one point. And I could never put a connective thread between all that customer behavior. Um, their behavior of buying directly from us or buying through a retailer or a secondhand reseller or understanding what they did outside of their daily lives. And that's innately just my curiosity about people. And I think part of the reason why you and I do audio content is like, it's intimate conversation. I'm always curious about people, what motivates them, what incentives make them act differently. And that curiosity lends itself well to understanding one slice of someone's life, but then the larger perspective of it, because that's how you actually move people. Um, So when I heard about NFTs on Clubhouse, immediately fascinated because I've always liked marketing. I've always liked technology and the intersection of those two. That's NFTs. The possibility of hearing some examples of what it could be was crazy to me. So the example of hearing a meme, right? Somebody creates a meme. They're usually not the one that popularizes it. It gets passed around a dozen times until it hits something like BuzzFeed, who popularizes it with their massive audience. And they make money off the advertising dollars of people going to their site or their page to go, to, to go view it. The original creator never gets credited. I've been working with creators almost my entire career, and that was always a problem that I'd heard from them. Or I think about asset ownership, right? Like, my parents, like I said, we had humble beginnings. They don't have a birth certificate. My mom actually doesn't technically technically know how old she is. God, imagine if that was on the blockchain as a wow. digital certificate that's authentic. She doesn't know her birthday. And so, well, the second I heard it, the fact that it's more blockchain than NFTs, and NFTs are token on that, right? So, you know, I'm kind of commingling the two. But the power of the entire platform of Web3 The ability to change how we live, work, and play is fascinating. And then as a marketer, when you hear examples of how it's used with in-game assets, how it's used with customer data, membership, I mean, my brain just blew up. So in the beginning when we were on Clubhouse, I don't think we were even that advanced yet. I think I heard an example about a video game where you could own an NFT that owned different parts of uh, the race course. And every time a car drove over that NFT, you got paid out. I was like, Well, that's fascinating. That changes the mechanics and the economics of gaming. What could that do to everything else? I think that was my first example I read somewhere that just made something click. And then I just went down the rabbit hole. The other piece of it, it's funny because you said it's either Clubhouse that people heard about NFTs or Gary Vee. Gary's been a mentor for a long time and been there with all of my big career transitions. And so when Clubhouse blew up, it was so overwhelming. I didn't know what to do. I called Gary and I said, How do I even handle the inbounds, let alone be strategic about what I want to do in life? And so I got signed to Vayner Talent and Vayner Speakers. And so, in an indirect way, while I was doing creator work with that team, he's in NFTs. And so it just became an easy kind of drafting off to understand his vision and learn from that.
1: I love that. And, I, and we have that, you know, connective, uh, link as I, I was very blessed. Gary, uh, took me under his wing in, in 2014 and, and really helped me kind of navigate the, the seas of live streaming. I was live streaming on, on Meerkat at the time. And, uh, mm-hmm. that was a wild ride. And, and I, and I love, you know, you're on Vayner speakers. Actually, one of, uh, my best friends, uh, Amy Landino is, uh, yeah. a Vayner speaker. So I, yeah. I, I actually introduced her to her husband. Uh, the, her husband was one of my best friends and Amy was single. And I was like, I, I need to bring you two together. And, and now there's a, a little Landino uh, in the making uh, very soon. So uh, lots so of... There's
0: like a space in heaven for you. <laughs> matchmakers have a special place in heaven. So, you know, just if you want to do that for me, I'm fully open. Okay.
1: Um, <laughs> I, I, I'll, I'll have to take you up on that. Although now I'm, you know, I'm divorced now seven years. So I'm a I'm, I'm matchmaker for others. I can't say I'm a matchmaker for myself uh, in... Uh, in that context. Uh, but we
0: matchmake each, each other. It sounds like you're decent at it, but um, yeah. I'm a fan of Amy's as well. I hosted a, TV, a season of a TV show, and I got to interview her for three different episodes. She is fascinating.
1: She is. She's amazing. And I, I got to actually discover we met via uh, YouTube, and she had just started a YouTube channel. And uh, I was like fascinated by her ability to jump cut uh, videos, and for ten years she uploaded a video every single day. And I, I was uh, one of those subscribers on year one. Uh, so it was her consistency, her level of commitment to her brand. Um, it's things actually that influenced this podcast exactly as uh, I kind of have taken it on as well. Uh, I'm curious, you know, you mentioned you know like the the birth certificate example uh, with your mom. You also mentioned like, kind of the intertwined on the blockchain side. To me, that's actually where I was kind of all excited about. I started talking blockchain in 2014, 2015, because I had worked at a, at a data center company. I'm curious from a, you know, you mentioned earlier about like as a marketer, you know, and working at you know, massive brands like you were working with, there was a lot of like disconnected data and we, we all of a sudden went from no, not enough data to a big data problem, which then was just siloed datas everywhere. When you look at like, the, the landscape of Web3 now and you think about it for a lot of the, the problems that you were trying to solve or the problems that you were having in those, in those companies, what are some of the, like, the use cases or the things that pop up that get, like, excite you the most that say, like, wow, this could really have helped me five years ago at that company? What are some of those examples?
0: Let me take that Nike example I touched on and actually blow it out. So imagine a shoe comes off the production line. And we embed an NFC chip in it, the same technology we use for Apple Pay, so it's pretty universal and luckily much more affordable. We embed the chip in a way that there's no way to remove it without ruining the shoe, like encased in the rubber. So now we've got a tracker, which links the physical and the digital worlds. Imagine as that shoe is being made, we have the, econo- or sorry, the environmental footprint. We know which artisan or factory employee made the shoe. We know what truck it went on and possibly what truck it fell off to end up being sold out of someone else's car later on. Now, it goes into a distribution center. You can track it. It goes to which retailer. You can track that. With accounting, you don't even have to worry about LIFO, FIFO. You know where every piece of merchandise is. Now, you take it all the way to the retailer. You take it to a consumer. You know when they bought it for how much Right? You could even tie it to apps in the ecosystem like Nike running and Nike training so you know that they're using it. You even know what it's resold for, it's passed down for. It's all in one place because it follows the product. It's not data held by the distributors or the retailers or even the manufacturers. It goes with the product and wherever that product goes. So one of the struggles I had, like I said, was if you, sell, if you buy a shoe on the secondary market, I have no idea who you are but those could arguably be the most valuable consumers. One of the things that fell under my umbrella was the sneakers app where all the hot shoe drops were sold. Every Saturday morning at seven a.m. Pacific, some drops go live. Now, if you were really a sneakerhead, you wake up at seven a.m. Pacific and you hammer it through your iPhone, your computer, maybe a secondary computer and an iPad. You maybe even have a good bot to try to buy a shoe. This is not a free shoe. You're just trying to get the right to buy a shoe, which is kind of crazy. And 99.5% of people get an L. It's like a huge meme in sneaker culture, right? It's getting an L from Nike. So few people actually get a chance to buy that shoe. And sometimes they don't even get their size, which is insane. So this whole sneaker culture is this massive um, movement. And in some ways, it's really fun. In some ways, it's really broken. Because if you had wealth and you didn't need to worry about pricing, you would sleep in on Saturday You'd maybe go online a few hours later and buy it for resale for 10 or 20x the price possibly because you didn't have to wake up early. You had the luxury of, you don't have the luxury of time, you have the luxury of dollars. And so now you still get the shoe. Nike has no idea who those people are and arguably those could be the most valuable consumers. So imagine if you could look in a wallet and see if they have 30 pairs of rare Jordans. Wouldn't you want to know who that customer is and service them? So everything from supply chain tracking to finance, to customer data, to real market value of products, to CRM and membership, this is one NFC chip that we could then program around with the blockchain to then not only have a universal view of the consumer, but to put the power of data back into the consumer's hands because it's their wallet. And while Nike might want to know who they are and they can airdrop airdrop stuff all day into the wallet, they have to understand your motivations good enough and create enough value for you for you to raise your hand and disclose who you are.
1: Yeah, I think that, that shift of... Uh, of owner of that value, right, and owner of that that data, and really being able to manage that. And you know, yesterday's episode uh, of the podcast, you know, I really broke down uh, the the titles ends up being you know twenty five, uh, you know, futuristic ways we can use NFTs that nobody are talk is talking about. And I actually used I'm a sneakerhead. I have two pairs of shoes like, actually in my office that are not my size. That, <laughs> that exactly. I <laughs> yes, I was there. I and I've I've been the, you know, refresh the app, have the websites going. I've been the wait out the store uh person for for certain pairs. I, I it's been a it's been probably a year now or I guess a year plus uh since I kind of walked that life, but I actually even mentioned, you know, I was walking the the mall, I was taking my daughters to bowling and the bowling alley was in the mall uh, around the mall and we walked by uh, an actual display of a pair of shoes that was in the window and it said new colors coming soon. And I remember I just took a photo of the, of the display and up until recording on that episode of the podcast, I had forgot that I even did that. But I was like, imagine if I could have taken a photo of that and it had a QR code that allowed me to, you know, buy that shoe with the color that I wanted right then while I saw it. And now there's a, a supply demand conversation that we can have here, right? There's a, you know, you know, we kind of shift the, the narrative around, you know, even marketing and advertising. Uh, so I love that you kind of brought that in uh, with the Nike example. I'm curious, you know, the you get to talk about NFTs a lot. I think we're we're both going to be uh, are you going to be at, at, at NFTLA as well? Yes, I yes. am. Yes, so I'll be at LA and Miami, so I think we'll we'll both be uh speaking at both of those uh events, so we'll get to hang out in person for the first time, which will be a lot of fun. Uh I'm curious from like the, you know, some of the the companies that you're advising or some of the, you know, the boards How are, are, has NFTs, the narrative around NFTs shifted at that level of conversation or is it still very like either there's an assumption or there's a massive need for education? How have you seen the kind of the narrative of NFTs going at kind of the level of, you know, advising board members?
0: There's a lot of curiosity and tepid interest, but a lot of fear. So they're seeing big names move into it, right? Um, I was lucky to host the Adidas, Bordeaux Club, Punk's Comic, and G-Money Spaces. Adidas and Prada did an NFT collaboration that I was lucky to be a part of as well. Um, Boss Beauties, World of Women is hitting a lot of the designer and uh, beauty brands. Budweiser, McDonald's, Taco Bell, Gucci. I mean, all these names are starting to enter, let alone Chrissy's and Sotheby's as the auction houses that's certainly not going unnoticed. But then they hear all the FUD. The scams, the crazy flips, the fact that it's a JPEG with no underlying asset value, which is actually completely fair. Um, it's, they're, they're undecided. I think there's a curiosity, but like the, most things that are scary to people, we fight them. So instead of the conversation being, tell me more, it's of course I've heard about them, I wanna know more, but aren't these 16 things true? And so I think we're, it's just, you know, I've been doing digital transformation from web one to web two for 10 years. Now we're doing web two to web three. Someone told me the other day, like you spent your entire career trying to convince people the, the web existed and now you're trying to tell them it doesn't. And so it's a different form of it, but transformation takes time. And what's fair to these, because sometimes I hear NFT and digitally native people crap on the executives of those companies. It is really difficult late in your career to make fundamental shifts it's scary to know that you might be giving up power in the role or position you've worked so hard for, which is is selfish somewhat, but that's just human self-interest. But beyond that, though, they're running publicly traded companies. So you have to understand that the SEC has certain rules. We don't even know if these things are securities yet. So for a company to buy one, it takes a lot of consulting with lawyers and accountants and even the government to make sure we're doing it right. You know, I advise some of the blue chips that we all know and love, and one of them, the second they get an ETH, they convert it immediately to fiat, which surprises a lot of people. But that's how they keep accounting safe. Or if you're a company and you put a bunch of your assets in ETH when it was $4,000 and what's it sitting at today, 2300 are you going to go tell Wall Street you just literally took a 40% loss to your business by waking up? Hmm. no. So there is a lot of interest. There's a lot of curiosity, but there's a lot of fear, but for rightful reasons. And it's not just because they're boomers that are willing to learn. It's just the mechanics of how we've set up modern industry and finance aren't friendly to the volatility and the lack of definition and regulation around this industry yet.
1: I couldn't agree more, and I think it's such an important conversation to have. Where it also we have to remember that you know the the pace of change, the rate of change, the amount of signals that are. Our, our driving change, you know, especially in that, you know, the digital transformation conversation, you know, so much of what we were working on was, you know, kind of centralizing data and centralizing experiences and, mm-hmm. you know, moving all this direction to where now we flip web three and we're like, we want everything decentralized. We want, you know, people to realize that they've been paying for these free apps with their data and now that they realize that they want you to value that data, right? And there's a lot of, you know, everything from even like single sign-on authentication and the idea that we, you know, I remember, you know deploying that with the u s government and some of the clients that we had, and that just the idea that you know one account could log on to multiple uh, you know different programs was so scary and i and I remember like I was like, oh, why does it seem scary and then I looked at it from like the Department of Defense level, which is what I was working with, and we had two hundred and twenty thousand nodes that they had to decide you know are we going to move every one of these these computers these devices to have this drastic change and i can 't imagine you know some of the changes that have to happen from infrastructure to from to policy let alone um some of the regulatory things that you mentioned as well and i think you know we also just have to recognize you know there's some you know brands that maybe are are making bad examples but there's also a, a, a whole lot of non-brands that are making bad examples i think unfortunately the brands end up getting like we hold them to a higher standard yet we know that they're not as you know nimble or agile as as many of the you know the companies that are out there uh, I'm curious from a standpoint of you know when you look at you know you mentioned boss beauties and I, and I love their you know partnership with uh, with Barbie and a lot of their doing um in with you know women in the metaverse uh, and i you know there's a lot of projects that are really. Uh, are taking hold from a partnership perspective. How do you look at like partnerships with brands and NFTs rather than just a brand entering from like launching their own? How do you think like the partnership world's going to kind of continue to evolve? Cause I think we're still in our infancy on, on where we see brands kind of coming into these, uh, these, you know, NFT projects.
0: I really like partnerships as an easy entry point because what we don't want is a uh, brand coming in, not understanding not only the technology, but the community and the culture coming in, aping in, and completely being tone deaf, right? We roast those guys. So coming in through a partner who not only might be able to help them with the technology, right, because we've all seen what bad launches look like and mints fail, but to to onboard them into the culture is really important. You know, a lot of times I I advise and um, we talk about things like rarities or reveals, and that's just not how regular products are sold. And it's a whole different way of thinking. And sometimes it's just hard to get your head around it. So I love partnerships, not only because it's an easy onboard for brands to kind of come in the way our culture expects them to, which is important when it's early and we're still defining it as we go. But I think they also have the resources, the credibility and scale that we need in this industry. I mean, I sit at the intersection of helping Web 2 companies transition to Web 3, but I spend a lot of time helping Web 3 companies or projects, I should say, grow up to be companies, right? You've got a small team that just made millions of dollars in a mint. And overnight, they've got people who are both customers and shareholders at the same time. And I will say, if you want to talk about dissatisfied customers, I've never seen it happen as fast as an NFT
1: project, right? (laughs) The most impatient customers in the history of the world.
0: (laughs) Right, totally. They're demanding, they're impatient, they're difficult. And the second they they don't like it, they drop your product and your floor tanks, right? Really kind of hard to do that and say, you know, sneaker culture, et cetera. I mean, you know, it's pretty well insulated. You know, if you're disappointed, you might call customer service or post on Twitter, but I mean, when the collective crowd doesn't like what a project's done, the entire floor tanks. So I think the intersection of those two is really interesting. I'm at the inflection point of the transition between both sides trying to learn from the other. I think partnerships are good in that way because there's absolutely stuff we can learn from Web2 that helps Web3. I mean, let's face it, some of the Biggest Web 3.0 companies are Web 2.0 companies working in Web 3.0, but they're privately held. They might IPO. They are not distributed or centralized. So in some, in some ways, we have actually like monopolies in Web 3.0 that are bigger than any of the FANG oligopolies in Web 2.0. So let's just be real about it. I love this industry. I think it's so exciting to build the future we want to be in, but it is not perfect. And I think actually making Web 2.0 an enemy actually stifles our own growth in Web 3.0.
1: I couldn't agree more, especially because, let's face it, we've learned from the migration from Web 1 to Web 2 that not only does it take time, but there's a lot of problems that we can't even foresee, and there's a lot of shifts that will end up... You know, there, When we look at a lot of the problems we have today in Web 3, partially it's because we're identifying them on the fly and then expecting them to be deployed, in a, in a, not only deployed in a fast manner, but in a way that has never been happened before, which is why we see a lot of this hybrid decentralized yet centralized um, you know the solutions and I think that's an important aspect as well. And and I love that you brought up, you know, I, I was actually you know making light of it a little bit earlier about you know how many projects overnight where someone had never run a budget before never had employees yet they teamed up with a friend and all of a sudden they have millions of dollars and I use the story you know one of my favorite projects that you kind of you know for me was a very a fun project to get into was crypto dads and mm-hmm. uh, I remember you know getting in there and and I, I started like you know putting you know my own thoughts into the discord and I got to jump on a zoom with the founders and within three minutes I recognized oh my goodness like all of the, not only are they overwhelmed with all of the, the ways that they're, they're being pushed and pulled, but there's a lot of like, they didn't expect for a lot of the, the, the things that happen. And for me, when I left that call, I became like their biggest advocate for like hey let's let's like let's take a little a beat here and let 's like help each other uh, move forward and so i'm so glad you kind of brought that to light because I think that is also something where you know i I kind of went a little uh, passionate about our need for better community management across uh, nft projects and to really invest in that. And the sad truth is, Web two companies didn't do a great job of empowering or investing in community managers. There's no surprise that Web three companies are are kind of doing that same um, piece. And I'm curious, you know, from you know as a marketer, someone with a marketing background and advising companies, I I look at. There's a limitation we also kind of have walked into where we don't do a, a great job of telling. NFT stories or NFT roadmap or even NFT marketing outside of Twitter, discord and clubhouse. And so I'm curious, what are your thoughts on how, that message and that marketing of these projects can kind of be, you know, for those that projects that are listening to this, how they can take their message outside of their kind of current comfort zone. Because I think right now we're still playing a lot of projects into the same group of liquidity and every rug pull just is less liquidity for us all to play in rather than trying to, you know, kind of use the other marketing tools at our disposal. I'd love to hear your thoughts.
0: We absolutely should diversify. And the ethos of Web3 is to decentralize and distribute the problem is humans are frustratingly predictable with the right incentives, and when you have 10, 20x margins happening in the space, it's really hard to dissuade people from going to the centers of, in the concentrations of projects and power and money, right? It's just really hard. So, I mean, if we didn't flip as much we did as we did on open uh, on the secondaries, OpenSea wouldn't have 90% market share. And I respect everything they've built. I mean, I spoke on a panel at ETH Denver with Alex, the co-founder, and he's brilliant. But it's our fault that we have monopolies in Web3. Because if we weren't trying to find the single most efficient place to buy and sell and flip and make a quick profit, we would probably explore other platforms more. So all the other ones that are actually trying to specialize in art or in music, they might find a niche. But we're going to the place where it's easy to make money or it's easy to transact, even if there's a lot of feature issues. I think in order to actually expand, we need a few things. Number one, we need to break away from this crazy flipping mechanism. As much as sometimes we buy NFTs for art or community, the majority of people are buying for profit. Otherwise, we wouldn't have volume traded be as high on certain projects. We wouldn't have the speed of which things get flipped. right? And so if we can move away from chasing that profit, then we don't need everything in one place. We have time to explore and play and diversify. Beyond that, I think that um, we need to build better features and security. There's too much going on, we don't stop to build that for the community, we expect them to be able to handle it. And it's funny, because the other Alex on the panel from the co-founder of Rareable, he was like, it's super easy, you just have a MetaMask, you have a cold storage wallet, you have this and that. And I was like, dude, dude, that is not simple for the average person. And even for the really advanced people here, the majority of people have clicked on a bad link at some point, so it is actually not easy. So for lack of better features, and for the desire for people to make a quick profit, because community doesn't happen on OpenSea, it happens on Discord, that's a whole other conversation. But if those things are still driving the flywheel of momentum, we don't have a chance to diversify. You're not going to go take your NFT project and build it on Solana because there's not as much of a secondary. That's starting to change, it's getting traction, but it's nowhere near that. You're not building it on Tezos or Polygon. Now, I love the people who are building that because they're actually building sustainably for us. I don't mean environmentally, but you know, for the longevity of this industry, but... At the end of the day, we're trading JPEGs with no underlying asset value. We all love them. I'm emotionally tied to way too many of them. But if Apple goes out of business, you still have the stock, you can liquidate inventory, you can sublease the buildings, you can license out the IP. But if an NFT project rugs, or whether it's intentional or not, you're just left holding a JPEG, no matter what was promised in the roadmap. So if we are not better stewards of this community, in terms of building sustainably so we stick around for longer and building more solutions with the right features and security and usability and more diversified solutions so we have options we're going to run into a bigger mess than web2 was
1: i'm curious from that standpoint right because i agree and i think you know it's it's so funny how we we love to lean into decentralization Yet most of us, our habits are we love centralized features and functionality. Like we love the fact that the the attention, the stats, the data is being pulled from you know OpenSea, and we love that. Like we don't have to kind of like think through a lot of those extra steps. Yet you know we also you know things like you know cancel culture or things like we are you know we want someone to be removed or stopped from doing something when we're like well that's actually the the reason we were moving to decentralization, where we could we could flex that based on our movements. So I'm curious, what do you see as like kind of like that tipping point to kind of get us that direction? Because I I question it from a standpoint of like you know crypto did it pretty well, right? Crypto at one point got to a mass where they started to be like okay now we have to recognize where these different coins kind of fit in and and some of the exchanges started to play nicer than they they were before i'm curious your thoughts on that like how, what is what are some of the things that you're looking for for tipping points for us to really and empower web three innovation and reward those that are innovating for web three. Cause there's a lot of great web three solutions that we don't give a time a day because we are kind of just innately kind of built into kind of falling back into some of these centralized features. What are, what's the tipping point that you see? I still believe in the ethos of decentralization. I'm not
0: sure if we actually can get there because decentralization can be really inefficient but I think standardization, or maybe better yet, portability or compatibility is really important. The reason, to your point, we go back to the same places is we're habits, or we're creatures of habit. We want it to be easy. If you have to learn where the feature set is on five different websites every day, you would never get anything done. But if we could actually make things that were compatible enough that if you were on different platforms or even in different metaverses with your asset and it was easy to port them around that might be the tipping point because to relearn everything on five different platforms is inefficient. We shouldn't expect people to do that. But if things start behaving the same way and the learning curve and the adoption is so much easier and faster to switch between platforms and if each platform offers unique features that we'd want out of them, but it's easy to move across them, I think that's the tipping point. But it goes back to wanting to build, number one, sustainably for the future, with features and security that make this work, which, you know, honestly, most people would rather day trade and make a quick buck. <laughs> yep. um, it takes building that, but also building the pipes between, which I don't know if we have a business model for yet. You know, do we give them a fraction? Um, you know, is that a, the new kind of gas? Possibly. But those aren't the business models that are rewarded right now, right? It's the flipping of NFTs. But how could we create a financial structure that incentivizes people to go do the hard work that will then make this a better place. I haven't figured that out yet. But again, humans respond to incentives. So if we can find the right ones, we can incentivize the best minds to go build this portable, compatible world that's distributed that we can all play in, because otherwise, we are just all going to sit on the same three platforms every day.
1: Right. And we're, we almost fall back into even a uh, worse Web2 scenario, right, where we we and I and I I think part of it, too, comes into, you know, when we're when we're looking at kind of like the rewards or the way we're incentivized, you know, I think one of the mistakes not mistakes, but just the things that, you know, the the reason that likes on Facebook and and likes on uh, on Instagram and number of followers became like the thing was because it was really the only vanity metrics that these platforms were providing us. Like how are we going to measure anything else other than these like three data points? And I actually questioned that in, in like for me, when we look at the, the data points on how we're you know, predicting a project for success or even we're giving proj- a project a, a green percentage versus a red percentage, you know, based on like volumes of trade. Yet we like to preach that we love individual ownership of a project. <laughs> and you're like, well, if there was a mass amount of individual ownership, the volume, of course, will kind of come down with it because there's less things for trading and even kind of the, you know, back and forth. Um I think that's one of the ones I think would be interesting is if we if we find ways to you know better provide some of you know some unique data points that aren't kind of based on some of these uh you know native uh, uh flipping habits or even you know some of the basics you know a lot of the i think the data that we're served today is kind of a byproduct of a lot of crypto uh you know data where we're influenced kind of um, on that side so i I love that that piece of it and I agree I think it's a place that we need to uh move forward. I'm curious, what was your first NFT? What was the first one that you ever bought?
0: Uh, this is a funny story. So I heard about VFriends when they came out, and I missed the mint because I was trying to learn what a wallet was. And by the way, I'd been hosting rooms since the winter because people wanted my audience. So I was like, okay, well, I'll host conversations. I'll be the novice and ask the dumb questions. But when I finally wanted to pull the trigger, it was right around the VFriends, uh mint, but I just missed that. So I wanted to buy one on the secondary. I learned what weath was. I wrapped some weath, obviously incorrectly, and everything got stuck in my wallet for like months. Oh. I had all this wheat there. I couldn't move it. And, you know, the Web 2 of me that wants everything in its rightful place, just I should have just opened another wallet, right? But, you know, I mean, yeah. think about all those extra wallets. There's like so much space junk in the blockchain of all these abandoned wallets where people are burning NFTs or they just forgot. You know what I mean? Um, I should have just opened another one, but I was hellbent on fixing it. And for months, I sat there waiting for that to clear. I tried everything. Of course, you know, there's no MetaMask help desk. There's no support. Right? And so finally, um, you know, uh, one of my best friends that I met on Clubhouse, his name is Jin Lion. He sadly passed away last year. And that hit our community really hard, not just because he was such an amazing member of the community, always so generous, kind-hearted, lifted everyone up. He was huge in the nft culture on clubhouse so it hit us really hard and so at that point my wallet had been stuck for so long i said you know what i want my first nft to mean something maybe the moment for v friends had passed i think by then it'd been i think a v friend was like because there's a sweet swan and i would argue that maybe it was inspired by me (laughs) and i really wanted the sweet swan and the floor for that was i think like seven or eight thousand dollars at the time and i was like well i can't pay that much And so I I held on that, but then I wanted my first NFT to be one that was done in commemoration of our friend Wolf X-Lion. Warhottle did it. It's a Campbell Soup-inspired can with Jin's face on it. And that ended up becoming my NFT, my first NFT, which meant a lot to me. Did I miss the opportunity on, on some big blue chips that I could have flipped? Absolutely. Does that not matter in the long run because the person that I grew up in the NFT space with is now commemorated as my first NFT in my wallet? That meant more. So that's actually the first one I have. Um, And, you know, since then, I mean, I think I've got, I don't know, a couple hundred in there by now, but that still always will be a special one to me.
1: I love that, and yes, rest in peace, Wolf. Wolf was. I actually got to meet him in person once, and that was one of the only times I got to uh, travel via the the pandemic. And uh, I was, you know, caught by I, by many of us that were the shock that that happened. And I and I think I ended up missing my flight. Uh, you know, in that uh, amazing clubhouse room, uh, you know, memorializing him, and that was. Uh, you know, beautifully done. I know that you were part of that as well. And, and there is something to be said about, you know, the, you you mentioned earlier, kind of like your emotional attachment to your NFTs. And, you know, I, when I launched the, the Mint 365 project and I'm buying an NFT every day for a year.
0: So cool, by the way. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. And,
1: and from a lot of people, they just assumed I was buying one, but I was just like flipping that. I was and I was like, no, I'm going to hold them for a whole year. And they were like, wow, that's like, you know, and And I had to like admit down the road was like, well, it's actually, I decided that because I'm, I'm very much like a nostalgia, emotional person. And if I get something and I like it, like, I don't want to let it go. Even when someone wants to buy it. And, and so like, I kind of built that in where I was like, well, I'm going to remove one of these like variables from like, Hey, I don't have to decide. Like I know that when I, you know, when we buy the NFT that, you know, we bought one today that I'm holding on to until November, no matter what. And I think, you know, it's been a, a fun ride on that. And I'm curious, like, you know, I, I think there's there's a difference between kind of like the flip shaming side of the house versus the idea that hey people are only in it for a profit and people are are kind of manipulating some side. But I also think, and, and I, I heard you know you got to speak on on this. Uh, you know, yesterday there were so many uh, amazing rooms on you know International uh, Women's Day. You know, on this idea of. You know, bringing new voices, new you know, people to the table, new ways that we can approach topics that, um, you know, that I, we just never had thought about. And, I, and I'll just say this to everyone that's listening. Like, do yourself a favor when you're in tw- you're on Twitter spaces or maybe you're on, on Clubhouse or maybe you're, you're on another channel and there's people talking about NFTs and maybe it's a, an area that you're not familiar with. Maybe it's the people in there are from backgrounds you're not familiar with. I'm going to challenge everyone to just sit in one of those rooms Because yesterday I spent many, many hours in a lot of the different uh, women's rooms that were, you know, Sandy Carter with the uh, Unstoppable Domains did an amazing all day um, Twitter spaces. And we partnered with her with the podcast. And I sat in rooms and got to hear discussions uh, about things that I hadn't even realized were shamed in in society because I'm a, a cis white male. And I didn't realize that the menstrual cycle was something that was shamed and not being able to be talked about. And, and there was these conversations that I was in awe and started taking notes around if I believe in this idea of us feeling less lonely and, and our connections being more meaningful and NFTs unlocking, you know, community and really allowing, you know, true, you know, diversity and inclusion, we have to start really opening up our listening. And I'll say, like, I think I, I, I think I, I was like the benefit yesterday of all of those rooms, just sitting in there, taking notes and learning these, these different use cases. And I'm curious, Juan, from your side, like, you know, I, I can guarantee that you get, I mean, I get a lot of requests, I can guarantee you get more than me, on people that want to, you know, hey, check out my project, support my project, be a part of my project. What is your kind of like filter? How do you kind of filter some of that noise? Because it's a little bit stressful. Like today I had to just decide my Twitter DMs were going to be something I was going to not look at for the rest of the day because I woke up to like an onslaught and I blame Shira a little bit because Mm -hmm. we did our Alpha Monday room and that Alpha Monday room just generated a lot of people that were, you know, everything from being featured on the podcast to we want you to promote. I'm curious, how do you handle that influx? Like what is your filter for kind of, you know, the projects that you either look into or the projects that you're willing to work with?
0: a great question. Real quick, though, I just want to say you were talking about your 365 NFTs, and you know you're holding them. You are selling them all in November, so at some point, maybe like by September, you need to start weaning yourself off of them because I can only imagine <laughs> how hard it's going to be to detach from some of them. I mean, they start looking like like me. I start looking like them. It's ridiculous. I can't tell if it's because I paid a significant amount of money for some of them that now I have to justify that, but it is interesting how emotionally tied we are to them, and how we actually represent ourselves often in social with those as our PFPs, our profile photos, right? We're starting to use those instead of our real-life photos. So I didn't want to let that go because there's something uniquely psychological and deep about identification with NFTs that most people don't have with physical products, you know?
1: Without question. And it's, I mean, it's, and, and I'll tell you, like, I'm, we're minting them, right? So the reveal is, is for the most of the projects are randomly generated. And I, I heard mm-hmm. someone, someone told me yesterday, uh, they were like, Brian, every project you mint has like a layer of pink built in, which is my favorite color. And I was like, I know. I, and now I'm like, I'm like, I'm like finding the pink that's in there, right? Like making that, <laughs> that emotional connection, right? Like, it's like a, it's like a beautiful little, uh, you know, connection and, and opportunity there.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I can't wait to see the journey of the rest of this year for you. Okay, your question about the filter. Um, First, I look at the team and the experience. It's no different than VCs looking at companies that they're they're considering funding in Web2. You want people who have experience running something. If they've run an NFT project that's gone well, great. If they've run something in tech or Web2, that's also not bad. Or just having run a business. Right. Um, for example, in disclosure, I'm an advisor to Boss Beauties, and the reason I signed on is because Lisa, the woman who runs it, ran a company of two people that sold cell phone cases nationwide to Verizon and Target. As a two-person company, she was able to stand up cell phone cases that had code on it written from girls, and they could supply nationwide to massive consumer outlets. That to me is someone who can figure something out and run a business, right? So if they have Web3 experience, great. Even Web2 tech experience, cool. But just running a business and being scrappy and figuring it out, those are really important things to me. Um, Then I also look at their roadmap and not the things on their roadmap, right? I'm not looking for another iteration of a yacht party or a hoodie, but what's the logic that goes into why that's the roadmap? Because that tells me how they think. And it's sort of similar to the first point about experience, but how they think in this space is actually really important because you know the rules of physics bend in Web three. Things we didn't think were possible are possible: fractional ownership of art, you know, shareable ownership of things, um, access, etc. If they can think through the permutations and possibilities. I'm less concerned about what the actual roadmap is, it's how they put it together, and whether they can think about things like omni-channel strategy, or different customer segments. They might not even call it those things, but it's an innate understanding of customers and human nature, that's what I think makes people get really excited about projects. Um, And then the third is, you know, they have to be docs to me. I know that's an unpopular thing for some people in Web3, and I totally understand why some people wanna stay anonymous. They might have a big crypto uh, bag that they don't want publicly known. They might want to you know, stay anonymous for safety reasons. I sign NDAs, but I need to know who they are because my brand, and I think a large part of yours too, is based on trust and credibility. I'm always docs. I've been forever docs. I'm on boards of publicly traded companies, so I have to be compliant with SEC regulation. So for me to put my, regu- my reputation and everything I've worked for on the line, I have to know that they're coming from an honest place too. And like I said before, sometimes there's rugs that are intentional. That's what I'm trying to vet for. There might even be unintentional rugs where the project tried really hard. They failed because they didn't know what they were doing. That's where my advisory part kicks in. And I try to help save it if it gets to that point. But knowing who they are is really important to me because if something should go wrong, I don't want to be there saying, I don't know. I didn't check you know, and any influencer or advisor needs to do that diligence. You wouldn't do that in web two, why the heck would you do it in web three, especially if you're an influencer, your product and your value is your audience. So if you're putting them at risk, because you're being irresponsible, then shame on you, and you deserve to lose those lose those followers.
1: Couldn't agree more. No, no project, no offer is worth jeopardizing the trust that we have with that audience, right And there. Mm -hmm. And I've said I shared here on the on the podcast, there was two projects that um, excited me. I started to do my due diligence, and I actually didn't even ask them to dox themselves publicly. Publicly, I needed to have them doxed, and we needed to have a Zoom call where I, we were able mm-hmm. to, you know, look each other in the the digital eyeballs. And three weeks of back and forth, and they re- ended up refusing, and I ended up refusing. Uh, to work with them. And we kind of parted ways. And, you know, and I think, you know, we are starting to see, you know, not only that the need for that, but there's also, there's other ways that we can, we can start to kind of, you know, if it's the the money side, or where you live, or what your job is, or you're worried about like the background, like, I think there's some other things in there. But I'm with you. Uh, you know, we have minted a couple projects that are with teams that are not doxxed. But I will tell you that, the amount of research that I did using some other tools that from like influencer marketing tools, where I could I could look at that account history uh, and some of those emails that they were using for that account to know like, wow, look at this person—they've been active on these accounts even if they were anonymous for all of these years. They right. you know, worked with some brands. Like, you know, there's some there's some of that, but I'm with you on you know, especially right now, we we all have to come together and recognize that trust is so easily lost, and every rug pull hurts every one of us each time that it happens.
0: Totally. It undermines the entire thing we're building. I mean, I joke, this is why we can't have nice things, right? (laughs) And so what I think you're saying is different, though. You minting a project, while obviously everyone's tracking your road to 365, it is in the public eye. You're not necessarily endorsing it as an influencer. So I want to separate that Mint and do your own research, but you minting it doesn't mean you're liable even if it's then broadcast to your audience. Versus, I'm talking about making money off of a project, whether it's through free mints or getting paid or becoming an advisor and still having an upside with it. If you sign your name on to something, you are and should be liable. And that's the stuff I'm talking about. Agreed. I think we're a little too free-willing about it. I even disclose, like just right now I talked about Boss Beauties. I'm yep. an advisor to them. It's hashtag ad ad of Web 2, and we are so callous about not doing that in Web 3. You said it. I mean, a reputation takes a lifetime to build and a moment to lose. And so if you're willing to mortgage that away, then, you know, you may not have a very long future in this space. And I think I'm very bullish on this space. This is going to be a long time to come um, for all of us to build here. And so the ones who are doing it sustainably, when we hopefully don't have but may have a crash, the ones who've been doing it right will survive.
1: And I will tell you just, you know, for and I, I share this a lot. I think we have to always, you know, we have to listen to what's being said, what's not being said. A big smile went over across my face when you were in the sentence, you were talking about Boss Beauties and you disclosed that because I am so pro transparency. And from my side, like my respect for you goes up immediately. Right. And I think there's a weird like misnomer on the more we disclose, like all of a sudden we're going to be judged like less of someone. And I'm like, actually if you're disclosing the relationships that you put the time in and that you believe in, it actually adds to your credibility, not take away from it. And I'm not sure why like the whole hashtag ad thing became like, I've told people, we ran a study with an influencer company that I actually got better social results. The ones I disclosed very openly because my community is like, Brian, you've been giving me stuff for free. I'll support the project that you're working with an, you know, as an influencer on. And I trying to get people to wrap their head around that is, is a little bit frustrating.
0: Yeah, I, I think a lot of the tech community is not in, in, in the creator economy. So they're not used to it. And so I do give grace to some, the fact that some people are new to this and didn't get it. But just step back and say human nature, right? If your friend's like, oh, you got to go try this restaurant and you go, maybe it's a great experience and great value, or maybe the food's terrible and you feel like it was overpriced. Wouldn't you feel really crappy if you found out your friend got a kickback for sending you there? Yep. No different with an NFT. We just gloss it over because there's so many, you know, upsides for our financial uh, opportunity. But it's no different than you know your buddy saying go do something, and you realize they got paid for it. You might have been okay by saying, you know, if they said, hey, listen, it's my cousin's restaurant, so you know you're kind of helping out the family, or hey, they you know they put me on this thing where if I can get ten new customers for them, I get a free meal. You'd be like, okay, that'd be cool. I'll help you out. But if your friend Basically, which, you know, if you have an audience, I treat them as my friends. My community are my friends. Even if I don't know them all by name, I have that familial relationship with them because if they're going to buy something on my recommendation, I have to hold that in high regard. Like, for example, I was in Dubai a couple of weeks ago and my friend's dad is an oil an oil painting on canvas artist, right? And she's like, please teach him about NFTs. And I was like, it's not that simple, et cetera. But I was like, fine, I'll go to his studio and have a chit ch- chat with him. So we're chatting and we're in the old part of Dubai where the old markets are. No one really goes there anymore. It's all being kind of redone. It's a little bit touristy. But I'm chatting with him and a head pokes in. And this guy's like, did someone say NFTs? And I was like, yeah, we're having this conversation. He goes... Wait, are you Swan from Clubhouse? <laughs> I'm in Dubai on the other side of the world, right? I mean, this has happened before on like the streets of Greece, etc. Which blows my mind because look at our—we're little one-inch images <laughs> on our phone, right? Right. But you know, my name's unique, maybe, etc. And so, not only did he recognize me from Clubhouse, he'd been in a room that I hosted a couple of weeks ago on a project, and he bought fifty thousand dollars worth. Ooh. I was like holy crap, this actually works. And now I'm freaking out because the weight of somebody spending that type of money is on me. Right Now, the project is not a rug. It's still trucking. He made a small profit off of it. They had a high mint price. So it's you know inevitable that after reveal, things drop a little and they have to fight their way back. So when you have a high mint price, that gap is bigger. He sold, he made a profit, but what if he hadn't? So we need to think of this not just as nameless faces in an audience who are, you know, buying the projects we're promoting. We need to think of it as real people spending hard-earned money on things that we recommend. And when you actually meet a person who said, I did something because you recommended it, right, that really hits home. So... I think we just need to be better stewards of the space. We need influencers because they work, right? They worked in web two, they work in web three. They don't build engagement or community, but they are a shortcut to reach an awareness, right? When you have a room with 10 people versus a thousand people, it is a massive difference, right? But those influencers who are creating those opportunities and hyping that buzz need to be responsible about it or we can't have nice things.
1: I couldn't agree more. Well said, Swan. Thank you so much for for joining. Kind of twice in one week, we got the the pleasure of uh, hearing you here on uh, NFT 365. Uh, Where can people get a hold of you, or where would you want people to to find you?
0: Well, we're on Clubhouse. You can find me at Swan. On Instagram and Twitter, I'm Swansit, all one word. And my website, swansit.com. So, yeah, find me on any of those socials or maybe in an old market somewhere in Dubai.
1: I love it. I love it, and I know I, I can picture that old market. I my first time to Dubai was in two thousand six, and I've been back a couple times since. But uh, I, I was only in that old market once in that in that area. Right. So uh, when, as soon as you said that, I was like, "You're right." I, the, each time I've been back, I have not gone back into. Uh, that old market area. But yeah, thanks so much for joining us. You know, thank you everybody for, for listening to this episode of NFT 365. You know, I, I could have put a ch- couple of challenges out there, but I also ask people to, when we're thinking about this space and we think about you know what is it that we want to reimagine, it's very easy for us to get lost in these short-term wins or, or following the path that others are are kind of blazing right now in this Web3 arena. But if we really want to reimagine a future that is different than the web two we have to be willing to make those things different and make different choices in this web three world and and i'm a believer i know swan's a believer and i hope that everyone that's listening is a believer and we can each do our part to make sure that we are you know kind of following and and creating uh and reimagining uh the future that we all want so until tomorrow my friends make it a great day cheers this show
0: is not financial advice so do your own damn research